This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Deport, Deprive, Extradite, 21st Century State Extremism by Nisha Kapoor. The extradition of terror suspects reveals the worst features of the security state. In 2012, five Muslim men were extradited from Britain to the U.S. to face terrorism-related charges. Fahad Hashmi was deported a few years before. Abid Nasir and Harun Aswat would follow shortly. They were subject to pre-trial incarceration for up to 17 years, police brutality, secret trials, secret evidence, long-term detention and solitary confinement, citizenship deprivation, and more. Deport, Deprive, Extradite draws on their stories as starting points to explore what they illuminate about the disciplinary features of state power and its securitizing conditions. In looking at these stories of Muslim men accused of terrorism-related offenses, Nisha Kapoor explores how these racialized subjects are dehumanized, made non-human both in terms of how they are represented and via the disciplinary techniques used to expel them. She explores how these cases illuminate and enable intensifying authoritarianism and the diminishment of democratic systems. Deport, Deprive, Extradite, 21st Century State Extremism by Nisha Kapoor. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Liberty. It sounds nice and all, but in the hands of libertarians, liberty takes on a meaning quite different from its colloquial guise. For libertarians, it's about liberty for property owners vis-a-vis the state. And as it turns out, in their quest to preserve that absolute freedom for the ownership class— whether their assets be human slaves, factories, or extractive industries. Democracy must be curtailed, and the people, if need be, must be checked and repressed. This is the argument put forward by my guest today, historian Nancy McLean. In her blockbuster book, Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights, Stealth Plan for America, the book makes a powerful argument for the anti-democratic origins and trajectory of free-market fundamentalist Koch brother-aligned economists who have come to profoundly shape and warp American politics to fit their dystopian vision. The book, as you might be aware, has also been incredibly controversial, eliciting sharp criticism from many libertarians and also from some scholars who are not libertarians, who argue that McLean gets her argument and evidence wrong. We'll get into some of that debate in this interview. As you'll hear, McLean doesn't think so highly of her detractors. Really quick, we have an information-packed weekly newsletter for our supporters at patreon.com slash the dig that basically amounts to an extended syllabus on further readings you can do to go deeper into topics discussed on this show. You can access that newsletter by supporting us at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Now, on to my interview with Nancy McLean, an historian at Duke. 
along with Democracy in Chains, she is the author of Freedom is Not Enough, The Opening of the American Workplace, and Behind the Mask of Chivalry, The Making of the Second Ku Klux Klan. Nancy McLean, welcome to The Dig. It's great to be with you, Daniel. Your book traces the corporate assault on American democracy to an economist named James Buchanan, a man who most of my listeners had likely never heard of before before they read your book. To set the table for everything that we're going to be discussing in a lot more depth, give an overview of, of who he was, what his ideas were, and what influence he ultimately had on American politics? Sure. Well, I would say, first of all, I mean, there's a broader attack on, you know, democracy and on the labor movement and other things that, that you know, has been brewing for, for quite some years. So his Buchanan's role was particularly with the kind of right wing libertarianism that has been uh, embraced by and pushed by Charles Koch and the donor network he's convened. So that's the strand that my book uh, focuses on. Uh, but it's become the most influential and the most um, uh, uh kind of audacious in our times. So I think it's a pretty important thread to see. Um, James Buchanan is not a household name. I had never heard of him when I started the research that became this book. So your listeners should not feel bad if they haven't either. He (laughs) was the first U.S. Southerner to win the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences, which he won in 1986 for developing a field called public choice economics um, and also for his work in uh, constitutional economics, as he referred to it. And And this was part of the wider free market fundamentalist project developed by uh, Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman and, you know, other uh, folks around what was called the Mont Pelerin Society. But Buchanan's uh, contribution was distinctive in that while others were really making a case for the market, um, Buchanan had kind of the, the vision and the foresight to realize that the most important thing, perhaps, for this free market fundamentalist cause was to undercut the legitimacy of government. And he focused laser-like on that, um, making a case that government could not do the kinds of things that citizens look to it to do because he believed that we were misunderstanding government. Um, And he argued that um, public actors, whether elected officials or agency officials or union leaders or anybody else who was acting in, in public, um, they should be seen just like market actors were understood in Austrian and neoclassical economics as individual actors pursuing their own particular interests, right, and their own particular uh, self-interest, uh, not the broader societal interest as, as they maintained. And so it was kind of a debunking operation. Um, and ironically, most of his work was at the level of theory and game theory, not empirical work at all, but it was tremendously influential in uh, undercutting that very, very strong mid-century, mid-20th century um, trust and confidence in government that when there was market failure or when corporations did things that harmed the public um, or that harmed their their, their workers, uh, that these other bodies 
um, could step in, whether it was labor unions or consumer groups or government. And Buchanan's whole school of thought was designed to demolish that, to undermine that trust, to undermine that confidence in government. And we're living with the effects of that, you know, every day now in the Trump era. So it was a, a hugely uh, successful ideological project. Um, and also, I think what's interesting about uh, my work, or one of the things that at least was interesting to me, was finding the origins of this school of thought in the state of Virginia uh, in the period of massive resistance to Brown versus Board of Education in the late 1950s. And what I saw in the archival research that I did was uh, Buchanan and the team he built around him essentially being given a kind of franchise by the state elite at the University of Virginia to develop this project, right, and to create this kind of um, free market fundamentalist outpost, the first one in the South, uh, and to use it to defend a model of political economy that they believed was under assault, both from the New Deal and from the emerging civil rights movement. And that school of thought developed through the ensuing decades, ironically, Buchanan worked particularly in Virginia public institutions, uh, most recently at George Mason, and he worked with all the uh, think tanks on the right and many of the key players on the right, such as the Heritage Foundation, Cato Institute, the Independent Institute, all of those uh, groups really from their beginnings in the 1970s forward. Um, so this is a project that from its very uh, origins was uh, deeply ideological and uh, determined to win the battle, battle of ideas against uh, liberal and progressive Americans. I want to talk a little bit more about, about public choice economics mm-hmm. um, as an economic school before we get into the the voluminous political history here. You, you write that he advocated a radical method, methodological individualism. Two key things that it did was define these very important terms or terms that came to be very important, rent-seeking and uh-huh. special interests. W- what was the rent and who were the interests that were seeking it? Wow, you go right to the heart of it. I like that. Um, yeah, <laughs> so Buchanan's school of thought repurposed um, an existing term in economics, this notion of rent or rent-seeking. And for mainstream economists, um, rent-seeking referred to people, say, who had um, a patent on a particular technology, who were seeking to extend that artificially so that they might claim additional income from it, hence rents. Um, but what Buchanan did is turn that uh, term around in the way that you might imagine a white right-wing southerner um, of his era would and present as rent seekers all of the citizens who made claims on government for things that they could not get from the market as individuals. So he portrayed as rent-seeking um, the actions of labor unions, right, that look to government to um, ensure their right to bargain for employers as a collective group. Um, he looked at rent-seekers, or he depicted um, retirees, for example, as rent-seekers, you know, senior citizens who are looking to government, say, for a prescription drug benefit. That would be rent-seeking. That would be trying to get something from government they couldn't get on their own. That really brings to mind the uh, Janice case 
to mind exactly, and the sort of conservative exactly. arguments you so see around that. So this school and these Koch-funded organizations have been behind all of those strategic attacks on the people that they depict as rent seekers. And the people they depict as rent seekers are basically the vast majority of pop- the population, right? Those of us who, you know, at some point in our lives, in some way, um, need to look to government, whether it's for unemployment insurance or food stamps or help when we're retired and we need meals on wheels or, you know, um, teach like the red state teachers now who are protesting to try to um, make their schools, their public schools viable again. All of these in these Buchanan, um, Virginia School of Political Economy uh, uh, analytical terms, those people are rent seekers. Um, And what they're doing is prima facie illegitimate in this school of thought. And this is the school of thought that has been weaponized by the Koch donor network uh, in order to radically transform our government and the rules, the operating rules of our society without openly telling the people that that's what they're doing. And I'm sure we'll get into that too. Now, you might think that this exchange of votes for policies that voters like is what democracy is supposed to be about. You might think that, yes. I know. It's very interesting, this whole um, fanaticism against uh, taxation, for example, that comes from this libertarian right, is they, they try to um, uh, claim the mantle of the founders, you know, and to say that they're Madisonians and, you know, the rest of us have all changed the country beyond recognition. But in fact, they really come from this kind of slaveholders' notions of liberty um, within the Deep South um, uh, place plantation belt, these planters did, you know, I mean, they were holding their workers in enslavement, you know, in chains, and they did not want to give or at least the most militant of them, did not want to give uh, anything in taxes to support public goods, like roads that would let yeoman farmers get their goods to markets, like public education, uh, public schools that would allow you know non-wealthy Southerners to also get their children elect- or educated, and so forth. So this really vitriolic anti-taxation uh, ideology that we've seen more and more of in recent years does not come to us from early America, writ large, it comes to us from Southern slaveholders. And there's a historian who's written brilliantly on this named Robin Einhorn um, in a book called American Slavery, American Taxation that I'm you know, kind of cribbing from and saying that. But it is really interesting because Buchanan's ideas um, have been compared by some of his own colleagues at George Mason to those of John C. Calhoun, the militant um, South Carolina senator who, who Richard was, Hofstadter uh, called the marks of the master class. Exactly. And, 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 and Buchanan's ideas are like Calhoun's in this detestation of uh, taxation, of notions of the common good, this reading of the Constitution that would prevent us from being able to do the things that people in democracies look to government um, to do for themselves and one another. So it is really, really interesting um, to see those kinds of the, the, the kind of deep south uh, anchoring of all of this. In a cause that I, I think of now as property supremacy. I mean, I don't know, you know, how else to depict it. Like these people really think that the rights of property should be trumping all. Sorry for the verb, um, <laughs> but all these other uh, public considerations. And that's not a majority view, and that's why they have to do it by stealth. The the president does not get to take a perfectly good verb away from us. Um, that's a good point. That's a good point. I won't be sheepish about using it. Unsurprising that the slave system that that Calhoun so ardently defended was 
quite compatible with this larger system of concentrated oligarchic power, restricted democratic participation, and just brutal state repression. Indeed, that's why the slave mm-hmm. system was set up in the the, the first place. To what um, to what degree does does Calhoun directly influence Buchanan? And the contemporary liber- libertarian movement, and to what degree is it more of an echo of the slaveocracy? Uh, wow, I like that. I like that word, echo. I think that's a helpful way of thinking about it. Um, I have not seen direct confirmation, although I will say that in the kind of intellectual milieu in which Buchanan grow, grew up um, and came of age. Um, Calhoun's ideas, you know, were still present and and uh, being taught. And also, when Buchanan came to the University of Virginia in 1956 as the new chair of the economics department and the director of this new free market fundamentalist uh, center, which, by the way, was funded by um, the lineal antecedent of Charles Koch's favorite philanthropy, which is now called the Institute for Humane Studies. Then it was called the William Volcker Fund. But anyway. Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. It's all very uh, so humane. Buchanan, <laughs> yeah, um, Bu- yeah, I know. It's very Orwellian. Uh, Buchanan came to Virginia in 1956 right in the midst of Virginia's leadership of the wider South in resistance to Brown versus Board of Education. And the constitutional um, fig leaf for that uh, resistance to the Supreme Court decision was John C. Calhoun's theory of the Constitution. And this theory was revived by a Richmond newspaper uh, editor, John James Jackson Kilpatrick, who later became a famous conservative commentator. Um, But so Calhoun's ideas were everywhere in the air and in the daily newspaper when Buchanan came to Virginia. And there were sessions organized by um, something called the Virginia Commission on Constitutional Government that was reviving Calhoun's uh, ideas and trying to promote them to the country. So so he really entered this hothouse environment in Virginia. And these questions about the Constitution were in the air just as he was shaping his own own public choice theories and and writing his first book that was the basis for the Nobel. So I actually think there's some pretty uh, strong um, uh, influence from direct influence from Cal or or indirect influence, I should say, you know, the way that Calhoun was revived and Buchanan was operating in this environment in which the Virginia elite was really pushing these ideas. And he was a very ambitious man and wanted to be part of that, um, that, 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 that state, you know, defense of states' rights and so forth. Um, So, so I think the influence is significant, but you won't see direct signs of it in his, his publications. It's not like he's citing John C. Calhoun. But again, I do think it's interesting that his own colleagues in Virginia called, they claimed John C. Calhoun as a precursor to, this is their word, modern public choice thought. And they said that uh, Calhoun's and Buchanan's thought had the same purpose and effect. Um, So that's his colleagues, not just me saying that. Uh, And I think if you look more broadly among libertarians, you'll see that John C. Calhoun supplied their their basic idea of – class analysis, which again is not based on productive relations, but is based on taxation. So that someone like Calhoun, a slaveholder, this is quite rich, right? A slaveholder who made his money by, you know, the forced labor of others could claim to stand for liberty and could say that he was the exploited victim of those free yeoman farmers of the upcountry who were trying to tax him for those schools and roads. So he was the exploited. They were the exploiters. And that's very much the model that Buchanan uh, develops in his um, 
you know, version of this this wider public choice theory. Uh, so I think his colleagues are right to say that there is this um, this deep affinity between his his uh, school of thought and Calhoun's. I want to talk about about Buchanan in Virginia and the the fight over desegregation. It's often conveniently ignored that the modern conservative movement really arises alongside the civil rights movement and mm-hmm. you know pretty clearly in decisive reaction and opposition to it. You know, for example, yeah. you write uh, National Review editor William F. Buckley Jr. He not only uh, defended Governor Faubus. Uh, as standing up to this Supreme Court tyranny, but compared mm-hmm. what he called this minor mistreatment of, of of black students in Little Rock to, quote, the picket line practices of monolithic labor unions. So this was really a yeah. defining issue for, unsurprisingly, for the conservative movement. It's an embarrassing history, but it's a, a real one. Um, explain a little bit about, about Buchanan in Virginia and his role in the fight over desegregation. Yeah, well, and let me also back up a pace to to, to underscore that that connection um, that you are pointing to with that quote in, um, in the minds of this emerging um, right in America in the mid 1950s uh, between that the the, the um, affinity that they saw between civil rights and labor unionism and the New Deal state, and I think this is kind of important because of the way that you know the laugh broadly construed has become become siloed, you know, in recent decades. And and one of the um, interventions of my book that I hope to get across to people is that at least in the minds of the enemies of inclusive democracy and economic and social justice, we are all part of the same project, right? Because so as you write, could... as you write, they had no scruples about enlisting white supremacy to achieve capital supremacy. Exactly. And and so that they saw, they saw, you know, because I think sometimes people think about the reaction from the right uh, to civil, the civil rights movement in its own day, or even the efforts at voter suppression in our time. I think sometimes people think about that as just being like atavistic racism, right? Like irrational, um, you know, um, antediluvian prejudice. On the and part of like I rednecks. Found, <laughs> right, exactly. And what I found in the sources is Buckley was very clear about this in this classic article he wrote in 1957 defending disenfranchisement, basically saying that if blacks could vote they would in the South, they would choose different policies from the white elite, and therefore they shouldn't be allowed to vote, right? And so I think like understanding that is crucial because those black voting preferences were also against an oppressive system of racial capitalism that was also challenged by the later parts of the New Deal, right? The, the workers' rights and the Wagner Act, Social Security, fair wages and hours. So so the, the right nationally, but particularly in the South, um, saw the New Deal as a, as a horrible, just an, an absolute affront to their sense of how society should work, right? And what government should be allowed to do. So they were already smarting from that injury when along comes the civil rights movement. And just a quick interjection, it. there's, it's, it's yeah. no coincidence then that the, the most serious racist limitations of the New Deal were very much a result of the power of Southern Democrats in Congress during it. 
Yes, absolutely. And some of the Virginia players were crucial in that. So Harry Byrd, who was a longtime U.S. senator, uh, fought the Social Security Act um, and the Wagner Act. And in the House, Howard Smith uh, led the fights against those things. So Virginia played a really, really crucial role in this more sophisticated reaction than you'd see in the Deep South. You know, in the Deep South, there was a lot of thuggery, right? And, you know, turning to violence and lynching and flogging and all of these things ultimately to enforce power. Virginia was a more, had a more sophisticated uh, elite, and that elite relied much more on developing um, very, very smart series of interconnected rules to maintain their own power and to keep working people, um, African Americans, um, uh, um, uh, moderate whites of the suburbs and the cities, to keep all of them away from power so that this elite could run in an oligarchic way. And I think Virginia is really the model for what we're seeing now. And so that's why another reason I think that the Virginia story is so important, because it helps us to see how an oligarchy can stay in power um, using a sophisticated um, uh, body of rules. Buchanan, what what was his big idea as white supremacist oligarchs in Virginia were mobilizing to resist desegregation of, of schools in the state? In the sources that I've seen, he, he does not seem to be primarily driven by race, right? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about this model of political economy that he sees as preferable to the New Deal model of political economy, which he actually talks about 20th century government as slavery, right? Very much in a Calhounian fashion, you know, that you have people who are actually oppressed, you know, socially and economically, African-Americans, um, you know, in the time of Calhoun and in, in Buchanan's time, African Americans in particular, but other, you know, white working people and others um, very oppressed in the South. But what he talked about as slavery was a, a government that had the power to intervene on the side of the oppressed, you could say. So he talks about all of that as uh, slavery um, and and tries to calculate the degree of slavery that existed in the society. And so his contribution to the um, Virginia elite in this period was to take um, the measures they were using to fight the Brown decision out of the charged realm of race and even the Calhounian constitutionalism um, uh, at the time in the, the late 1950s, and put them in the domain of economics. And so his first big public intervention from this donor-funded center at the University of Virginia was a case for essentially privatizing Virginia's schools as a way to evade the Brown decision and making a case that um, uh, private schools would provide better, more competitive, less monopolistic education with more choice, and they would have the liberty to do whatever their private patrons asked them to do. And in this case, you know, in, in, when he issued that report in 1959, the people who wanted private schools were white supremacist parents who did not want to abide by the Brown decision. Um, and they were being led by the forces of massive resistance in Virginia in a group called the Defenders of State Sovereignty and Individual Liberty, which again, I mean, that's what Buchanan's ideas were about, right, too, is this state sovereignty, individual liberty, which included uh, 
ditching public education in order to support um, private schools that were beyond the reach of the courts, where white parents who didn't want to abide by the Brown decision could take their children and essentially have their prejudices subsidized by the taxpayers. Two critics of your books who are not right-wing libertarians, and this is a socialist podcast, so uh, we're going to limit uh, any any debate to uh, people who don't want to drown the government in a bathtub, um, are, are political scientists Henry Frell and Stephen Tellis, and they, they argue uh, against your assessment of the role of the civil rights backlash in the development of, of public choice um, economics. And, and they say in the Boston Review, on the basis of the evidence presented by McLean, you could argue that Buchanan's primary commitment was indeed to individual liberty as he understood it, but that he was opportunistic and prepared to take advantage of white Southern politics to advance the interests of his cause. What's your what's your response to their critique on that? Well, I think it's very funny. They were very quick out of the gate, um, Stephen Tellis and Henry Farrell, to um, attack the book. And it was clear from the piece that they did that they hadn't read it, but it went right away to the Wall Street Journal, um, which which gave it a lot more airtime. And one of the things that was frustrating to me about that is that Stephen Tellis um, did not alert readers that he had a book coming out with the vice president of Cato, um, the Koch-funded um, libertarian organization that is advancing this kind of rent-seeking analysis of government. So I just think people should put all their cards on the table mm-hmm. um, when they're reviewing. And I also think they have an obligation, if they're going to call something a review, to read a book carefully, which it was clear that they did not um, from their work. And one of the reasons it's clear is that the, the the bit that you just cited is exactly what I argue in the book, but they hadn't actually read it closely enough to see that. So the libertarian right, and I, I don't know Farrell, um, I just know Tellus, but and, and these critics, you know, and we can come back to that, but there's a funny story there. But um, it, 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 they they have tried to make the argument of the book this silly, truly silly um, personal thing about Buchanan, as though I'm saying that Buchanan is a racist, as if this is the most important thing to be said, right, that he had the sin of racism in his heart. And to me, it just shows how um, to hear that as what they see in the book. Um, it shows how behind economics and political science are in understanding race, um, you know, as compared with disciplines like history or sociology or anthropology, etc. Um, because that is so simplistic and totally misses the point of what was happening uh, in this period in the 50s. But also that argument about using race opportunistically, that's exactly what I say in the book. So if they read it, that's the point. I thought the argument, the contrary argument that they were putting forward sounded a bit like your argument. Yeah, it was just ludicrous. And in fact, one of my chapters is titled Letting the Chips Fall Where They May, because that's what Buchanan said in his cover letter to legislatures when he sent legislators rather when he sent this report advocating, you know, essentially privatization that I was just talking about, he said that they were issuing this report, letting the chips fall where they may. You know, and it's just so obvious where those chips were going to fall. They were going to fall on black children and families and on the possibility of racial amity, you know, in the the future of the South. Um, but he didn't care. And that was my point. My point isn't that he was driven by race is that he was so committed to this libertarian vision that anything else was not significant compared to it. So he was willing to let the chips 
fall where they may. And I think it's also worth pointing out, because I think their case was so silly um, and, and based on such poor reading, that um, that the legislator to whom he sent – I mean he sent it to multiple legislators, but the, the person whose papers I found the, the report in um, was, the, was the sponsor of five separate laws against the NAACP to take away the <laughs> NAACP's First Amendment rights. So when Buchanan writes to – Legislature, legislator who's known in the news for spearheading that fight against the NAACP and says he's letting the chips fall where they may, you know, my critics may want to still try to exculpate him, but I think anybody who looks at the context and the evidence will see that I'm right and that their their effort is a rather pathetic um, quest to also deflect public attention from the um, the crucial part of my book, which is how these ideas have been weaponized by the Coke donor network to achieve what it cannot achieve if it is honest with the people about what it's seeking, things like the privatization of Social Security and Medicare and making government non-functional for the majority. Um, and so these guys just you know go after these silly things in the book and misrepresent them in order to create smog so that people will not encounter the important argument um, of the work. So, yeah. And I can also tell you, this is very fun. I've made lots of new friends, so to speak, from, you know, the work. Or new, you know, have connected with people across all sectors of progressive politics in a way that's been just really inspiring and educational and uh, exciting. But one of uh, the areas has been folks involved in environmental work, right, and in fighting climate science denial. And so some folks from Greenpeace and also the youth group on Coke My Campus, who had come out of environmentalism, saw the attacks that were coming coming on me and this book from the libertarian right and recognized it as being the same MO as the Coke-funded fossil fuel industry right uses against climate scientists. And so they started a media tracker to follow all of these attacks on me that were coming uh, you know, overwhelmingly from the right. And they were actually able to document that, I think it was 91 out of 101 uh, attacks were from directly Coke-subsidized professors, um, you know, in these Coke-sponsored um, um, uh, centers and stuff, directly Coke-funded professors or uh, operatives in Coke-funded institutions. And that is just really stunning, right? 91 people. And, uh, you know, in the beginning, not a single one of them announced their conflicts of interest. Uh, so that, I think, also tells us a lot about um, how the right is fighting what it likes to call the war of ideas, and that's basically they fight without the Geneva Conventions, right? I mean, it's not <laughs> it's not honest, it's not fair, they're not open, um, and uh, it makes it hard for the public to, to really understand what's happening. Hi, this is Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig. As you know, The Dig is an essential podcast doing critical work and shaping the meaning of what the left can be today. It's my favorite podcast, and you should support it by donating at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by the Socialism 2018 Conference. If you like this podcast and want to connect with other radicals in real life, you should come this summer. The Socialism Conference is four days of political education, debate, and camaraderie. It takes place July 5th through 8th in Chicago, 
and features activists, authors, and people just like you from across the country and around the world. Featured speakers include Boots Riley, Dave Zirin, Sarah Jaffe, Anand Gopal, Amy Goodman, and many more. The conference is packed with talks on everything from eco-socialism and climate change to black athletes in revolt to debates around topics like gun violence, resisting the police, socialists in elections, and the fight for universal health care. There will also be discussion about the movements of today, from Me Too to Black Lives Matter to lessons from the teachers' revolt, featuring voices from the front lines of the strikes. Socialism is co-sponsored by the Center for Economic Research and Social Change, ISO, Haymarket Books, Socialist Workers, and by Jacobin, and will feature talks with Jacobin contributors on lessons from the current teachers' rebellion, the movements of 1968, Bernie Sanders, the future of the socialist left, and more. The conference is also a great space to learn the basics of Marxism. To learn more about the conference and to register, visit socialismconference.org. That's socialismconference.org. Now, we obviously can't cover the entire span of Buchanan's career here, but but one piece of it that I found particularly revealing was how much he was motivated by this intense animus toward campus radicals in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he, this quote's really amazing. He, he argued that the prevailing system of higher education enabled, quote, a handful of revolutionary terrorists to undo the heritage of centuries. And his diagnosis of the problem was, I think, this perfect and predictable admixture of libertarianism and social reaction, which is sort of a theme, a running theme throughout the whole book. Um, And he wrote that the issue was, quote, one, those who consume its product, i.e. students, do not purchase it. Two, those who produce it, i.e. faculty, do not sell it. And three, those who finance it, i.e. taxpayers, do not control it. Tell me about this diagnosis of uh, the ills of higher ed and what Buchanan proposed as a solution. Yeah. So um really glad that you picked up on that. Yeah. So this um, is uh, after Buchanan's work in Virginia. Um, and what happened is after the Voting Rights Act was passed and, and the Virginia um, elite and government was accountable to a broader swathe of voters, um, his center fell from favor at the University of Virginia, um, and the state actually began to care about in public, you know, investing in infrastructure and economic development and education. And when all of that happened, um, Buchanan, who also operated as a kind of a bully, he and his, you know, fellow libertarian colleagues would kind of strut around and bully people. And folks at the University of Virginia who were conservatives got sick of it. Um, so, um, so there was a whole kerfuffle there. We don't need to get into, but he left and went to UCLA for a year. And the year that he happened to go was 1968, 1969, which is like the height of student unrest. So he gets to UCLA. Angela Davis is the most popular professor on campus. Um, The faculty is defying Governor Reagan because Governor Reagan wanted her to be fired because she had been an admitted communist. Um, And so there's this whole fight on campus about, um, you know, the, the racial justice, about the war in Vietnam, 
Vietnam, about student rights on campus. You know, all those things are exploding in that period. And so Buchanan is just horrified. You know, here he is, um, a man of the right who's in, I guess by then he'd be in his uh, 40s. Um, and he comes to this campus that is, you know, not in the South, <laughs> uh, that is racially diverse and that is in this upheaval. And he's just horrified. And so he sets down, you know, he does what an academic does, right? He sits down to write a book about it. And he came up with this book that provided the analysis that you just described of why higher education was in turmoil. And so he was applying his public choice thinking to say just what you said, that the reason there was protest on campus is, is that there were perverse incentives. And so that you had to restructure the, if you wanted to get rid of this disruptive protest, you needed to restructure and punish the protesters too. He was very into that. Um, you needed to restructure the whole institution. And lo and behold, the blueprint that he laid out, laid out in that book in 1969 is the blueprint that is being followed by the Koch network of organizations, the American Legislative Exchange Council, the people that, you know, read um, uh, Republican-controlled state governments are putting in charge of the universities. And that model is just, as you summarized, to say that students should pay full-cost tuition, right? No more state-subsidized sense of um, higher education as, as a common good, a public good, um, you know, as was the case in the, the um, post-war period. Uh, so students should pay the full cost of tuition, hence the spiraling debt loads. People have full cost of tuition. Um, the faculty should not have control, right? The administrators should be more like managers, um, and they should run roughshod over the faculty as well as students where, where they see, saw it necessary, um, and that the uh, taxpayers and the state governments should be much more active in structuring um, uh, how public higher education worked, um, So, uh, and also that it should move away from a, a classical liberal arts kind of curriculum to more just preparing people for jobs, like kind of a technical training school. All very so, familiar. So that – Exactly. I mean, it's it's totally the model um, uh, that's being used now. And in fact, I think the AUP's publication, Academe, is going to be running that chapter this summer in their public um, uh, publication because it's just so um, uh, it, 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 it so helps us understand this coordinated attack that we're seeing on public higher education. And it's very much from Buchanan's playbook. And the other thing that's an outrage about it too is that he was wrong. Right. I mean, the campuses weren't having protests because of these incentives, as he asserted. They were having protests because there were real issues of injustice, right, in terms of racism and, you know, um, institutional racism and, and, and deep patterns of exclusion in terms of students who were eligible uh, for the draft um, to fight in a war that they, they believed was wrong, but they couldn't vote. Um, and in terms of campus governance issues and in place after place, you know, we saw that the administrators who recognized those as real issues and reasonable substantive concerns pushed through reforms that settled the unrest, right, and made it possible to go forward. But Buchanan actually was arguing to administrators that the way they should respond to this protest in the near term was essentially by clubbing students and expelling protesters and harassing uh, student leaders. And I think that um, story of his response to the campus protest also tells us a great deal about um, libertarian notions of freedom, 
right? That at the end of the day, it's really much more about defending property rights and social order than it is about enabling any kind of dissent in a way that most of us would understand freedom. Which includes, at the end of the day, if need be, certainly the use of the repressive arm of the state to to protect the so-called liberty of private property owners. Yes. And I mean, you even see that coming out now, too, with these ALEC, um, American Legislative Exchange Council, you know, which is um, uh, Koch was instrumental in helping launch and his donor network supports. Um, and they provide this you know, uh, model law templates to legislate, you know, sympathetic legislatures. Among those that they have proposed are these laws that enable um, drivers oh, to God. drive into protesters who are blocking streets. And we saw that, you know, one of those passed in Virginia before the Charlottesville wow. um, event. So, yeah, I mean, it just you, you can't make it more concrete than that, that this is a vision of liberty that really doesn't um, allow for dissent that might interfere with the rights of property holders. And along those lines, you write that Buchanan and his ilk really idealized the Supreme Court of 1900, which is the court of yes. of, of Lochner and Plessy v. Ferguson. And I think that identifying those two cases together is important because it tells us a lot about the relationship between oligarchy and racist support subordination and the use of the repressive arm of the state to to enforce them all. Yeah, so that really struck me as a historian, and probably it didn't strike economist readers, you know, in his field, or maybe even some political science readers. I don't know. Nobody else seemed to remark on it. But to me, to have someone saying, you know, not just once, but multiple times that his preferred constitutional rules were those of 1900, that just tells us everything, I think. Not everything, but it tells us a lot of what we need to know about what his vision of the good society and the just state and the proper constitution is because that was a period that was almost singularly restrictive of the popular will, including um, the ability of Democratic majorities in the states or in Congress to pass reform legislation for things like workers' rights, wages and hours, um, you know, unemployment, like, like there was just so many things. And what was Lochner briefly? Yeah, so that was the Lochner case. Is that that, that whole era of um, Supreme Court jurisprudence uh, is remembered by legal. They call, it, they call it the Lochner Court. But this Lochner Court was kind of a radical right libertarian court that would routinely um, uh, rule unconstitutional anything that enhanced the collective rights of workers, right? They'd say, no, that's a violation of freedom of contract um, and anything that interfered with the rights of property owners. I mean, maybe I'm exaggerating slightly, but really it was a very unique um, era and one that was had to be overthrown in order for the New Deal to empower workers and citizens and create social insurance. So and Plessy v. Lochner. Ferguson legitimated uh, second-class citizenship. Yeah, and it's almost, you know, it kind of tells us something about how historical memory can wrongly put things into different silos because it's the same period of the court, right? People will say the Lochner court or the Plessy court, um, but they're the same court and then the same people and the same people who were saying that essentially property rights should be supreme and people should not have the power to organize collectively or to make these claims on the state that might interfere with corporate power. That same court was saying um, 
segregation was perfectly legitimate as long as there was this, you know, fictional, um, uh, uh, mythical separate but equal, which never existed. Um, and also that same court was upholding the disenfranchisement uh, that was pervasive in the South, um, you know, in that period by 1900. Uh, and also, um, though we tend to think understandably of the disenfranchisement in the South because it was, um, you know, so hugely important and also so brutal and so forth and so on, but also there was significant disenfranchisement of working people in the North and particularly, you know, immigrant workers and workers trying to exercise some power at the municipal level. So, so you know, that the Supreme Court of that era was almost uniquely reactionary, I would say. And that's what Buchanan was holding up as ideal. And now you have all these Koch-funded legal scholars making the case for essentially a revival of the Lochner Court. And actually, this is interesting because we're talking, you know, a few days after there have been articles in the news um, revealing through Freedom of Information Act uh, requests from a, a group of young people in an organization called Uncoke My Campus, they were able to get the terms of the hiring agreements for many of these Koch-funded faculty members at George Mason uh, in the economics department and the law school, and it's just eye-popping how corrupt it is. The donors in some cases were actually choosing the faculty or having a say in choosing wow. them, and the faculty were responsible to be promoting, you know, these Coke kind of libertarian ideas. And in uh, at George Mason Law School, the Federalist Society, which was also launched with seed money from Coke back in the day, the Federalist Society had set up a like a shell group, a front group to funnel money into the law school to create uh, this center on the administrative state, you know, basically this radical deregulation center, you know, and to do all these other things. And they're actually, you know, operating through a shell group, a group that's talking about the right kind of constitution was using a shell group to turn this public university law school to its own um, donor, you know, arch right donor driven purposes. And it's just like, you know, you look into that stuff and you just, you have to breathe and say, just, wow, you know, this is where this goes, but this is how determined that Coke donor network is to transform at least important bastions in the legal academy and ultimately to transform the constitution itself through a state convened constitutional convention, which they are actually close to being able to call. Before we get into that, I just want to highlight for listeners uh, the the sort of depth of the horrific ironies of the, the Lochner and, and, and Plessy court. Like the, the, this is the sort of thing I think Adam Winkler gets into in his in his new book. But but the case Lochner v. New York, which was decided, I think, in, in 1905, was around uh-huh. an, a New York state law forbidding bakers to work more than 60 hours a week or something or, or so. And, uh-huh. and, the, and, and the Supreme Court decision striking it down cited the 14th Amendment, which was yeah. enacted to protect freed slaves, but as Winkler, I believe, shows in his new book, was far more often used to protect corporate power. Yeah, so that is another, yes, um, tragic 
well, I shouldn't even say irony because it should be an outrage of that period, but exactly. So the 14th Amendment with its requirement of due process, you know, under the law and fair treatment and so forth, that was supposed to be there to uphold the citizenship rights um, won by African-Americans through Reconstruction after the Civil War and emancipation. Um, But by the late 19th century, corporations had co-opted it and this, this, the, you know, um, Plessy Lochner Court was supporting this notion that corporations are people too, you know, as Mitt Romney put it. Um, but that 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 notion that corporations should be granted, you know, all the rights and protections of citizens while not being subjected to the same kinds of responsibilities that individual or accountability that individual citizens are, that comes from the court of that era. It's been radically expanded, um, you know, in our, in recent years with Citizens United and so forth. But that that core that core appropriation of the Fourteenth Amendment is is a fruit of that that late nineteenth century court that Buchanan was so enamored of. As you've alluded to a number of times, Buchanan wasn't just a critic of higher education. He was also an institution builder mm-hmm. within it. And he was was first at UVA, then a stop at UCLA, then Virginia Tech, and finally George Mason University. Um, give me a, a, an overview of, of his journey through academia and mm-hmm. the and what he built as he traversed it? It's very interesting. Um, when I, I he, he died in 2013, and before I got access to his archive, there was a memorial conference for him um, that I attended. And one of his colleagues, who is one of these key, you know, Coke faculty pig uh, figures, a guy named Tabarak, said that Buchanan understood from the beginning that we needed a movement. I think that's a direct quote. I don't have the notes in front of me. But basically, Buchanan saw the need for a movement. So from that very first center that he created in Charlottesville in 1956 with money from the ultra free market foundation of the time um, that was also – well, anyway, I don't want to go too far in the weeds, but it was the key free market fundamentalist uh, funder, he got five-year startup funding from that, that, that organization and from the beginning approached his uh, academic work as movement building. And so he would bring in these visiting speakers who were part of the free market cause. He made sure to get fellowships endowed for students and the early students, by the telling of people who were there, would all come in sporting their Ayn Rand dollar sign tie pens. You know, I mean, it was really like a movement culture in academia, and they were a very tight-knit group. He always insisted on separate quarters for his ideological team from the rest of the economics uh, department. And so they were constantly thinking about how to, and in those days it was all men, and it still is overwhelmingly men, but, you know, how to bring in men into this cause. He, he called them our boys, you know, how to bring the boys into the cause, get them inculcated in these ideas, essentially get them set up for a life uh, in academic careers that in most cases then would be subsidized by the donors. Uh, and he did that in institution after institution with funding from uh, right-wing uh, foundations, you know, such as SCAFE in the 1970s, Coke later on, etc. But so the donors, the, the corporate arch-right donors would provide the funding uh, that would enable all of this movement building, and that's what they did. And so they trained people, many of whom went into academic jobs, but because uh, Buch- many of Buchanan students couldn't pass muster in regular economics departments because they couldn't do the kind of complex math most economists have to, 
many of them went off to the think tank world. And so I actually, there were two chapters that didn't go into the book, but where I charted um, essentially this diaspora that went out from George Mason of all of these people who came in and were um, trained in these programs at George Mason, who then went off to staff everything from the Heritage Foundation to the Reason Institute to the Independent Women's Forum uh, to um, uh, um, Freedom Partners Chamber of Commerce. I mean, you just go on and on and on. There are like literally hundreds. And this is sort of parallel to what uh, the Federalist Society did with the judiciary. Yes, and that was part of that because they were also the judiciary, or the, I'm sorry, the Federalist Society was also kind of applying this model, right, of using the campuses as places, um, uh, uh, sources of a talent pipeline, where they would get people in, bring them in, build on the campuses, um, you know, set up debates, provide fellowships, you know, create these lush conference um, possibilities, etc., and so change the country. And here's a really dramatic example of this, actually. The field of law and economics, which has been hugely important in changing um, the courts and constitutional understanding in matters involving uh, corporate prerogatives. Richard, and property Richard Posner and, and Milieu. Yeah, but there was an entrepreneur who was crucial in that, an academic entrepreneur like Buchanan, whom Buchanan actually arranged to get hired as the dean of the law school at George Mason in 1986. This guy's name was Henry Manny. By then, Henry Manny had already been running since the 1970s, the kind of preeminent movement building entrepreneurial uh, operation to train legal scholars and sitting judges in law and economic thinking. Uh, he started it in the early 70s with seed money from Coke, continuing Coke funding through the years. By 1996, Henry Manny's summer camps had trained two fifths of all sitting federal justices. Two-fifths, 40% of all federal judges had been through a Koch-funded curriculum in Henry Manny's summer camps. So that's really an example, I think, of the very, very shrewd way in which this arch-right libertarian cause uh, has leveraged, in Koch's terms, uh, academia to support their effort to transform the wider society. Charles Koch, of course, plays a big role in this story, and this is someone that listeners will be somewhat familiar with. Tell uh-huh. me a little bit about his, his money, his political ambitions, the the constellation of libertarian organizations he, he seeded and continued to yeah. fund, and, and how Buchanan fits into it. I, I am not persuaded that f- folks on the left yet have an adequate assessment of Charles Koch's capacities, right? I think there's a certain way in which a lot of us, and I count myself, you know, as guilty as anybody else, but there's a kind of smarty pants syndrome on the left, right? Where people think that um, people in the corporate world are, you know, that they're venal. It's like Buchanan's ideas applied to the corporate world, right? That they're only venal. They're just trying to lower their tax bills and regulation, maybe not very smart, et cetera. And so I think my book, um, also has value in a kind of know your know thine enemy <laughs> um, frame, which is to say that. Charles Koch is a really brilliant man, I think. You know, he has taken a company that, yes, he inherited, but he's multiplied it a couple thousand times over the value of what he inherited. Um, And he's done that by playing a very long game, thinking very strategically, reading constantly, and always trying to figure out how to get the edge on the competition. Now, in the business, that's the fossil fuel industry and all the other things that the 
Coke Industries conglomerate now controls, but it's also true of his politics. He has been serious about trying to transform the politics of the United States since at least the mid-1960s. And he has paid close attention to ideas. By his own um, accounting, he has funded hundreds upon hundreds of libertarian thinkers looking for the right strategy that would enable this breakthrough for a set of ideas that he knows are not popular with the people. Most people don't want to live in a libertarian world. So how to get around that? He found that strategy to get around that unpopularity in Buchanan's account of how the 20th century state grew. Koch has weaponized that to reverse engineer 20th century government to make it so we can't do anything for one another. And we're back to that Lochner world that we were talking about. Um, but anyway, I think this is important because, you know, and I think from the speaking I'm doing around the country and stuff, I, I, I know that people in unions and community groups and all sectors of the progressive movement are realizing that um, they have been too confident by half, right, or by more um, yeah. in the sense that people have um, not been paying attention to this very, very deep, sophisticated, strategic thinking going on on the right and to this very long game that has involved multiple stages and what Cope likes to call interrelated plays. And so suddenly after, you know, the 2010 midterms uh, and after Scott Walker took control in Wisconsin, you know, and others, you know, and this whole um, machine went into overdrive, people on the progressive start side started realizing, hey, what's happening? Just as our 2010 ideas- was the big wake up call for yeah, sure. Yeah, and just as our ideas have become ever more popular, you know, more and more people support the basic ideas and goals, you know, of, of progressives, but steadily losing power, you know, and able to win many, many individual campaigns, whether it's for living wages or family leave or this or that, you know, all these particular policies, particularly in urban uh, communities and some states, but winning these campaigns, but losing the war. And so, so I think to understand why that's happening, Happening, we have to pay attention to the strategy that has been embraced by the other side and to and understand the long game of that strategy and what the end game is. And I'm really happy that I'm hearing from readers now that they are finding the book very helpful for this, for understanding what it is that the right has built and done and how they have systematically been changing the rules to disempower the left, you know, and make corporations stronger and more dominant. And so, so I think that we can can uh, deal with this and we can challenge it and we can, you know, um, you know, I, I do believe there's definitely hope of changing this. Um, but but I do also believe it's an all hands on deck moment for democracy and that um, moving forward requires a really sober assessment of um, what we have not been paying attention to and how important it is and how much we need to change the rules uh, again in order to face democracy um, uh, from from what the Koch network has pulled off. Your aforementioned uh, critics that we were discussing earlier uh-huh. say, say that you mistakenly attribute too much of of Koch's political technology to, to Buchanan. They say that it's more about his own homespun business management philosophy. What's what's your what's your where, well, where do you differ with guys, them? I have to say so many of them, frankly, they're on the take. You know, let's just be say it plainly. Um, in the last chapter of the book, I actually quote a colleague of Buchanan's uh, who didn't seem to care about what was being to the, done to the country, but he was very upset about what had been done by the Cokes to the libertarian movement. And he said that a 
essentially the whole libertarian movement had been – and this is somebody who was a libertarian, right, who had spent years in this. He said had been corrupted by pocket change from an autocratic businessman was, I believe, the quote. Um, so these guys – you know, Charles Koch is – messianic. He thinks that his business philosophy, what he calls market-based management, is the solution to everything in the world, including how to run nonprofits, how to do anything. And he is so messianic that he has imposed that model on, on nonprofits, and he makes everybody kind of bow to it like you would bow to Caesar. So when you see people saying, oh, this is not Buchanan, it's market-based management, they're kind of um, – they're, they're bowing to Charles Koch, right? I mean, I mean, they're 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 earning their keep as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's it's that crude, um, because Buchanan. I mean, no, sorry, Koch himself and his um, political lieutenant Richie Fink, who came out of Buchanan's department. Um, you know, I have. I, I it actually didn't end up in the final version of the book, but I have, you know, um, correspondence with them thanking Buchanan for so shaping their understanding of the political economy. Um, you know, when they they um, it, there's just so many ways in which it's really clear that they're applying Buchanan's thought um, and that these think tanks talk about it. Um, in Wisconsin under Walker, there were people talking about how he was applying public choice thinking. So basically they're, I think, in saying that, A, trying to flatter Coke and B, trying to also um, save Buchanan's reputation, because here's a funny thing that I did not know. But my book went – I mean I didn't know before I went to print. My book um, came out – I think it was June 18th. On July 4th, George Mason University renamed Mason Hall – that is the premier hall you know, named after its founder – renamed it after Buchanan in a multimillion-dollar fundraising bid for what they call Masonomics, which – we might as well call Buchan Buchananomics or Coconomics. And so it was terribly embarrassing for them that my book was getting all this attention showing who Buchanan really was and what his project was and what the crucible of it was. And this is um, after they renamed their law school. Exactly. It was, well, they did it. They, oh, yeah. After they renamed the law school Scalia. Yeah. So anyway, so I think part of what's going on is damage control. In fact, you know, I think most of what's going on in these, you know, silly word games they're playing um, in writing about the book is, is damage control because they want to uh, exculpate Buchanan from, you know, the context that I show and the things that he did and said in that context. Um, and they also want to flatter Charles Koch, who seems to take a great deal, need a great deal of flattery to say that his market-based management is all that's going on. And it's just silly. I mean, people who look at the evidence, um, who have independent minds um, and are rigorous thinkers have been quite persuaded by the, the case I lay out. So I think these guys are, you know, just trying to do whatever they can to, to, you know, um, cloud the discussion. There's actually, there's a wonderful um, uh, blog about um, climate science denial and all of these um, corporate and right-wing backed efforts to mislead the public on climate science, and it's called Desmog Blog. And I think that's just a perfect metaphor for what so many of these Coke intellectuals do too, is they try to put smog um, into the public discussion so that people won't see what's really happening. Um, and, um, uh, you know, another 
telling um, uh, illustration of that is that before they were promoting climate science denial, uh, some of Buchanan's colleagues were working on hire for the tobacco companies, uh, trying to undermine the case for restrictions on uh, tobacco. So, um, so it, it really is a, a there's a long history of, you know, choose your metaphor, you know, cliche, but blowing smoke into the atmosphere or smog or whatever, but basically trying to um, to uh, misinform the public so that we won't have action by democratic government on the things that we know are issues that need attention. There's a lot that we won't get to and that people have to pick up the the book, including um, including the Reagan period, um, the plan to privatize Social Security and sort of some savvy scheming around that there's um Buchanan's visit to Pinochet's Chile there's a lot and there's there's the contract with America and Dick Army there's a lot that we won't um be able to get into including um uh including those things i just mentioned um so i want to i want to close out by asking you about the long run implications of the libertarian assault on democracy uh, it's a movement, as I mentioned earlier, that you had written has no scruples about enlisting white supremacy to achieve capital supremacy. And you point to Michigan, where Republican state government imposed direct control over majority black cities and where Flint, mm-hmm. as a result, ended up with poisonous water. Yeah. You identify the assault on the courts and the successful disenfranchisement of huge swaths of Americans by, of the American electorate by way of both voter ID laws and gerrymandering. And um, as if we needed uh, to be more structurally undemocratic than the current system, you know, necessarily requires already. Um, and then you also highlight the successful disinformation campaign against climate science and the assault on unions that is reminiscent to what happened under Pinochet in Chile. And some, what has this movement accomplished? It has accomplished quite a lot, and you sum- summarize some of that. I mean, I would say that this uh, this train is very far down the track, right? That they have accomplished a great deal. Um, Charles Koch himself has actually compared what he does in management, and as you said, that management is also applied to you know um, uh, the political work. But he said we like to think of what we do as stone masonry, you know, and the skilled stone mason chooses the right stone to start and sets that stone, and that stone opens space for other stones and blah, blah, blah. But I think if you you take that metaphorical way of understanding what they're doing and think back, for example, to Scott Walker in Wisconsin, you get an understanding of what they've accomplished. So they have, by taking away um, collective bargaining rights from public sector unions in Wisconsin, um, and not just taking away those collective bargaining rights, but also radical rules transformation designed um, in, 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 in just excruciating detail to undermine the uh, capacity of public sector unions and to drive away their membership. They have achieved that astonishingly so that those unions have lost over 30% of their members um, and that in turn enabled the um, voter suppression in Wisconsin, the gerrymandering. Wisconsin has just been the most recent state to authorize a state convened constitutional convention under Article 5. So you can see how each of these pieces builds on the other in what Koch calls interrelated plays to make liberty self reinforce 
reinforcing. The legal changes uh, and challenges that are going along also enable that. This Koch network was behind developing the constitutional case for um, Citizens United for unlimited corporate spending in politics. They are behind the uh, cases to take, you know, like the Janus case to take away, um, to undercut public sector unions. So they've, and they've also been very important through their investments in think tanks and in academics and so forth and in media in changing the public conversation about government. Um, They have also commandeered the Republican Party using Buchanan's ideas about incentives and punishments. They have made one of our major political parties account to the extreme right wealthy donors rather than even Republican voters. And we could see that in the health care um, uh, bills um, in the Senate last, uh, you know, um, last year. Uh, so they have accomplished really a tremendous amount. And, you know, as someone who studies social movements and their impact on public policy, I have to, you know, at least recognize that that has been quite they, they've accomplished quite a lot. Um, do I ultimately think that they will win? No, not if enough people understand what is going on, how it's happening, and why these people are doing what they're doing. Because this cause knows, and I think that's the single most important finding of my book, that its core ideas and its vision of society are deeply unpopular. And that is why they're relying on stealth measures to push all this through and on misleading the public, making people think there's a problem of voter fraud, making people think that there's no danger from climate change. All of this misinformation and these stealth measures are designed to to advance an agenda that is guided by the the, the the vision of a messianic, extremely wealthy, wealthy beyond most of our imagining minority um, that doesn't like what happens when the rest of us get to vote and influence government. So they've accomplished a lot. I think that that, you know, if people don't pay attention, they will accomplish the whole thing, right? But I do believe people are starting to pay attention. I do believe people understand this. And I think that the more people who know what is happening, why it's happening, and where it's going, um, uh, we may have the capacity to, to stop this. Um, and and to stop it, I think we'll need to uh, not only restore democracy, but renew democracy for a new century to deal with the chronic problems that we had even before the Cokes came on the scene. Perhaps the greatest of the many ironies you identified in your in, in your book is that Buchanan's whole philosophy was was based on him taking such a dim view of human nature. But the irony is that he was campaigning against altruistic public policies, you know, enacted by through democratic mechanisms. And so in reality, he wasn't so much describing human nature, but insisting on shaping it through policy, politics to reflect yeah, his really own yeah. ideological proclivities. So I, I, right. I think we have we have plenty of human nature on our side. <laughs> yes. I mean, they want to create a world in which we at least we will never be able to use government to look out for one another and engage in the common things that we, we do together that require tax transfers, you know, whether it's caring for our elderly with meals on wheels or dealing with polluted waterways or helping children get better educations for this new economy, all those things they would block. So, uh, yeah, I think we we have our our work cut out for us. Well, Nancy McLean, thank you very much. Thank you so much.
Nancy McLean is an historian at Duke and the author of Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after succinctly defining communism as the abolition of private property, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts. And subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated, including you telling your friends, family, strangers about the show. And please do find us at patreon.com slash the dig, where you can make a monthly contribution and access our weekly newsletter. Even a few bucks is a huge help. (laughs) 